Hey, Grace Church, Pastor Jonathan, it's great to be with you uh, today. Uh, we're in the middle of this series, walking through the gospel of, of Matthew and talking about the king and his kingdom. Uh, Jesus spends more time talking about the kingdom of heaven than any other thing. Um, I, I think if Jesus is talking about it that much, then it must be pretty important. But the problem is, we don't always understand what that means. So these last few weeks, we've been trying to get our heads wrapped around what Jesus is teaching in regards to the right side up kingdom in an upside down world. I, I love how we've been in Matthew, but I love how Paul describes this in uh, Colossians chapter one. He says, for he, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, for those who have said yes to Jesus, you've been rescued from darkness and brought into the kingdom of King Jesus. Um, as king, he's to rule and to reign in our lives. Uh, we've talked about how the kingdom is now in our hearts, but <clears throat> there's also this future aspect to the kingdom. Uh, where our perspective, it affects our perspective on this temporary upside down world and it gives us eternal hope. And so really, we, we dance to different music. We dance to different music than the world hears. We live by different priorities and different values and different perspective, a different purpose. A kingdom is driving Jesus's message. We've, we've read this earlier in Matthew chapter four. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to, to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, has come near. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus gives us a message about the kingdom that requires a response. He says, repent, turn away from your upside down ways and turn to the right side up kingdom of heaven. Believe and follow the king. Jesus then gave a, a message about what life looks like in that kingdom when we looked at it last week in, in chapters, chapters five through seven. To these listeners, this would have been so disorienting because it was so different than anything they'd ever heard. In fact, we read at the end of chapter seven, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Yeah, you know, I think it's common these days to hear someone say, hey, have you been following uh, the, the voice or have you been following the mass singer? Have you been following American Idol? And if you have, it can get into a pretty lively debate as to who's your favorite, who's your least favorite, who you think's gonna win. But then there's also, there's those who follow the Indians. You know, spring training's getting started. Uh, you know, who's, who's pitching in spring training? How are they doing? They're following a spring training to, to determine what kind of season, what kind of year they're going to have. Others follow the stock market and depending on the Dow Jones, it, it alters their mood, their attitudes, their, their actions from day to day and week to week. Uh, the point is whether you, <clears throat> whatever you follow, whether it be a reality TV show, a sports team, the stock market, or the news. 
it takes a certain investment of time and resources. When you follow something, it, you invest yourself in it. Sometimes you even rearrange your entire schedule to be certain places at certain times. It can affect the way you think, the way you feel, your mood, uh, what you're passionate about. But what makes the difference between, let's say, how I follow the Indians and how I follow my son's high school soccer team? You see, I'm going to follow his soccer team a lot more closely. Their wins and losses are going to affect me a lot more deeply than following a baseball team. In fact, I'm going to try to make every game. Why? What, what's the difference? The difference is a relationship. In a similar way, when we talk about following Jesus, it's not just about being a fan or believing certain things as much as it's about knowing what's important to him and allowing these things to, to, to arrange my priorities around what he prioritizes. So we're gonna live in response to the gospel, the good news message of the kingdom. On the, in, in, the days, uh, of Jesus, <clears throat> in the days of Jesus, people were following all kinds of things. In fact, the, the Greeks were into this whole idea of, of schools of thought, of disciplines, usually based on um, some sort of philosophy. So the teacher would have a certain philosophy, a certain belief system, a cause, and, and people would gather around him and who, who followed his way of thinking. For example, some of the Greeks noti noticed that, uh, that rivers kept flowing, and so they believed no one could step into the same river twice because both the river changed and, and the man stepping into it was changing. And so they developed this whole school of followers formed around the philosophy of change and motion. Well, another Greek was, was sitting down and he, he thought about that. And he's like, well, if an atom is going from A to B, before it can get from A to B, it has to go half the distance. But before it can go half the distance, it has to go a quarter of the distance. And before it can go a quarter of the distance, it has to go an eighth of a distance, and a sixteenth, and a thirty-second, and on, and on, and on. And before you know it, it gets to the point where it's not moving at all. And so he concluded that motion is an impossibility. He gathered his school, his followers, around this idea of immobility. Now, I think probably some morning some of us feel like we're part of that school, right? <laughs> So now we have two different schools of thought, the disciples of change and motion and the disciples of immobility. And it all sounds crazy, but uh, it wasn't a complete waste. A lot of architecture and geometry resulted from this kind of thinking. You know, most of us have learned that the square of the hypotenuse of a right triangle equals the sum of the square on two sides. Well, you have Pythagoras to think, about, to, to think for that. Uh, he had his school of followers. I, I guess it was like geometry club. <laughs> well, in addition to this, um, the Jews had a certain way of approaching discipleship as well. There were those who prided themselves on being followers of Moses, and they believed that Moses had received the law from God, and this law needed interpreted for the people so they could understand exactly what God was wanting them to do. 
In fact, a lot of these were called Pharisees. They were concerned about unknowingly breaking certain laws. And so they end up adding 365 prohibitions, 250 extra commands to the law. Then there were the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist looked around him and he didn't like what he saw, so he started a movement. John the Baptist was a, was a little wild and outside the establishment, he was different and he gathered people around him who saw things as he saw them. He saw a need for change, a, a need for repentance. They were followers of a cause, wanting to see uh, things and, and people turn around. All this to say in Jesus' day, there were a lot of things to follow. Philosophies, ideas, opinions, beliefs, and causes. A lot of these sound crazy to us, but the reality is they were just trying to figure out why do we exist? How do I exist? What's, what's life? What's purpose? And, and really in the midst of an upside down world of suffering and pain and difficulties and questions. So then Jesus comes along and says, well, I have another way. It's about the good news of the right side up kingdom. Let me tell you about it. So Jesus comes, he does something entirely different. He invites people to become his followers, but, but, but it's not a commitment to a philosophy or a system of thought or a cause. Instead, he makes a very simple invitation that still applies today. Very humble, very modest. He goes to fishermen while they're mending their fishing nets. He goes to a tax collector as he's gathering taxes, and he says this, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and, and followed him. He comes to Matthew, the tax collector, and Jesus it says he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus simply invites them, hey, come, follow me. Follow what? It's like, follow me. This was different. Jesus was calling these men not to a commitment to a system or a philosophy or cause. Jesus is calling them to himself. He's calling us to a relationship with a person. Follow me. So as followers of Jesus, we're committing ourselves to Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the King who wants to transform our hearts today and change our lives and priorities forever. If that's the case, whether you're considering following Jesus or already following Jesus, we'd better get to know Jesus. We got to see a little of this last week when he described kingdom values and practices. And today it's as if Jesus is saying, you've heard what I've said, now watch what I do. You see, if the king doesn't have the power or authority to accomplish anything, what good are his promises? What good are his principles? Well, last week we worked through Jesus' message about the kingdom. Matthew ends chapter 7 recording a parable that, and the importance of, of not just hearing about the kingdom, but putting what you're hearing into practice. And I think that's what Jesus demonstrates in the very next chapter in chapter 8 and 9. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Matthew takes chapters 8 and 9 and gives us 10 different miracles that reveal who Jesus is and how it affects the way that we follow him. Now, it's interesting because rather than placing these miracles in, in chronological order throughout the story of Jesus, 
Matthew groups bunches of, of miracles together into three different sections. Matthew arranges these stories in a way that demonstrates the message of the king and his kingdom. Now, Jennifer and I just started watching, or well, we just finished watching a series about the royal family, a little bit of historical fiction, but it reminded me of a story that was so powerful at the time. I think it was around 1989. I was, uh, I was in college finishing up, and uh, Princess Diana was in the headlines, and this was her first solo trip to establish herself as, uh, as a royal of substance and style. Now, most of the world expected that she would come to New York City and spend her time with the rich and the fashion, uh, <clears throat> in fashion places and style. But she surprised everyone when she came to New York and, and she visited the, the rich and, and some of the fashion designers. But she also visited homeless shelters. She visited a, a pediatric AIDS unit in Harlem. You see, at that point, at that time, people incorrectly believed that HIV and AIDS could be spread by a simple handshake or, or a quick hug. There was a lot of fear involved, and many of these children on this pediatric unit had been abandoned because of that fear. That belief would be changed by Diana's actions. When she arrived at that pediatric unit, she started to hug each one of the children. The world was stunned. How could a royal, how could someone of such prestige and power show such concern for the underprivileged and the abandoned and so uh, little concern for herself? It was an act of compassion that would change the way the world looked at AIDS, the way the world looked at children with AIDS. This simple act of compassion helped break down stigmas and led to a surge in, adopt and in adoption requests for HIV-positive children. It was unheard of. It was unheard of for a person of her prestige and position to spend time with, let alone have contact with the homeless and the rich. And it was at this point in her life that she became known as the People's Princess. Now, it reminds me, there, there was someone even greater who set aside the rights and privileges and power of heaven, and God became flesh and lived among us. You see, Jesus is the people's king, and he demonstrates that power and authority and compassion in ways that were completely unexpected. In fact, later when confronted for eating with outcasts uh, of their society, Jesus defends his actions. He states his purpose in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. It says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, like these sinners, lepers and Gentiles and women were considered outcasts. And so we come to Matthew chapter 8 and it begins with the story of a man who had a skin disease, leprosy. And he approaches Jesus and says, can, can you make me clean? And see, leprosy was contagious, but probably even more concerning for this man and the people around him was that anyone who touched him would, would be made ceremony, ceremonially unclean. That meant that, that people, especially religious people, avoided him. Nobody wanted to be around someone with a skin disease. But what does the king do? 
we read that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. You see, what we'll find is Jesus could have healed this man in a lot of other different ways without touching him. But I believed he touched this man to reassure him, you are still valued. You are still loved. And so Jesus not only healed him, he restored dignity to a man who had been shunned, shamed, and avoided. You see, Jesus would not build his kingdom on the basis of race or crack or class or, or any other kind of, of division. The person was more important than any category or label, or label. And the point is, and you can write this down, marginalized people matter to the king. Well, the next story, Jesus meets a Roman centurion with a sick servant. The Romans were occupiers. The Jews wanted them overthrown to regain their freedom. Uh, the centurion was a professional soldier who represented a, a history of tyranny and bloodshed and, and hard times. He was a Gentile, a non-Jew, in other words, another person to be avoided, another person who was marginalized by the people. Well, Jesus is ready to go into the man's house and heal his servant, but the, the centurion has faith that Jesus can heal his servant from afar. And so we listen, and it says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. In other words, this man understood what no one else in Israel understood. Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the one who would come, make all things new. And Jesus marvels at this man's great faith. And so Jesus says to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. After this great miracle, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law who is in bed with a fever, and yet we see another person marginalized, a woman marginalized by the culture. And Jesus touches her and, and her fever recedes. In fact, it's, it's kind of, I think it's kind of humorous. She gets up and makes him dinner. <laughs> and after this, Matthew records, he, he summarizes, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and, and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and, and bore our diseases. See, Matthew puts an exclamation point at the end of this summary of Jesus's incredible day of healing, showing that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecy of, of Isaiah. He is the one who would come and deliver and rescue the people of Israel. But Jesus' compassion for the marginalized must have been very disorienting for many people. They wanted a warrior king, one who would kick butt and take names. Well, Jesus is a warrior king, but he's also a wise and compassionate and merciful king. And here he shows us that the greater battle is for the heart, the heart of the lost, the hurting, the marginalized. As I said before, if the king lacks authority, what good is his message if, if he doesn't have the power to put it into practice? And so we come to this next set of miracles that demonstrate the king's authority and power. Now you can write this down, fear-filled people find courage from the king. That's what these, these miracles are all about in this section. 
Because after Jesus challenges a couple of guys with the cost of following him, he gets into a boat with his, his disciples and he's relaxing and he falls asleep and a violent storm hits them. It was a scary time. The waves were starting to swamp the boat and the disciples were scared. What does the king do? We read in, <clears throat> we read in verse 25, the disciples went and, and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. So Jesus doesn't just stop the storm. He, he calms the storm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. These are days recorded of Jesus' life in which he never seems to get a break. In fact, right after this, in verse 28, we get some interesting details as to what Jesus faced next. And when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Well, for, for the first century Jew, what was happening would have scared them half to death. And, and it was completely disorienting. For, for one thing, Jesus purposely entered into Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. Secondly, they, they, these demon-possessed men were coming from the cemetery, which would have been considered unclean because of dead bodies, and, and they believed they were inhabited by evil spirits. And third, these men were demon-possessed. They were so violent and dangerous, everyone steered clear of them. What, is, what does the king do? It's fascinating. Jesus gives a simple and concise command. The only thing he says is, go. And the demons leave the man, men and enter into a herd of pigs. Which, by the way, would indicate there were more than two demons, but a whole gaggle of demons. In fact, Mark says there were over 2,000 pigs. The town, either because of fear for his power or anger at the loss over their, their herd, just Jesus leave. They don't recognize the king. The third miracle comes in chapter 9. Some men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and what does the king do? He, he tells the man, get up and walk. Well, no, actually he doesn't. Jesus' first response, again, is surprising and unexpected. Seeing their faith, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, I would imagine that everybody kind of, what did he say? Well, the spiritual leaders who witnessed, they weren't too happy either because it meant Jesus was claiming to be God that he could forgive sin. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Yep. There is so much more we could talk about in these stories. But I want us to realize today is, is that Matthew wants us to know that the king has power over the natural world. He not only stopped the storm, he calmed the storm. 
He has power over not only the natural world, but the supernatural world. With one command, with one word, one verb, he deals with a whole legion of demons. But even greater than these things, he has the power to restore life to those who are spiritually dead by forgiving their sin. What this means is there's nothing that stands in the way of the king and his, and his kingdom. Nothing natural, nothing supernatural, nothing spiritual. Nothing can overcome or derail his plans and purpose. You might think, well, what does this have to do with following Jesus, the king? Well, I think Matthew is providing us with motivation to become followers ourselves. The one who teaches with authority, the one who shows compassion to the marginalized, the one who has authority over creation, the one who has authority over the supernatural world, authority to forgive sin, is also the one who has authority over the lives of those who follow him. He alone is king and lord. He's no ordinary man. He causes demons to tremble and commands the winds and the waves. The reason we follow Jesus at all costs is because we belong to him. And belonging to him, we're subject to his authority. That's why when two men approach Jesus and want to follow him in, in chapter 8, verse, verse 18, Jesus points to the first one who seems excited by all the healing and all the hoopla and everything surrounding Jesus. And Jesus basically says, no, you haven't counted the cost. To the second who, who says, man, let me first bury my dad and, and then I'll follow you. We believe his dad was still living. And so Jesus challenges his priorities. This disciple had not yet made Jesus a priority. He was waiting for the right time. He was waiting for a more convenient time. He wasn't willing to surrender to the king's authority. I think the point is, if we truly come to grips with who Jesus is and understand his power and his authority over all things, there's no excuse good enough to keep from following him. See, Matthew follows up these stories with his own personal miracle. People look to Jesus as some kind of political savior, but they're constantly disoriented and befuddled by his choice of companions. And Jesus once again goes where he's not expected, among sinners and, and those despised by the culture. And Matthew, a despised tax collector who worked for the Roman government, follows him. An interaction with John the Baptist's followers reveals that the king has come to bring spiritual joy. And as Dan pointed out last week, he, he came not to rehearse or to remove the scale of the law, uh, do, re, mi, fa, si, la, ti, do, but to transform the law into the sheet music of the king, to love God and love people. The new and refreshing news of the kingdom could not be contained by old expectations. And this third set of miracles then connected, connected to the forgiven and healed paralytic. The king, we find that the king is the only one who can give me what I really need. The king is the only one who can give me what I really need. While Jesus is talking to us, to the followers of John, a ruler comes and, and kneels before Jesus and informs him that my daughter has died. 
Well, this was no longer a healing. This was a resurrection. In his faith, he knows that, that all Jesus has to do is say a word or lay a hand on his daughter and she'll live again. And again, it's bold, incredible faith on the part of this man. And Jesus starts to go to his house, and as he's wake, making his way to his house, a woman in the crowd touches the edge of his cloak, and Jesus has a small exchange with her, and she's healed. Well, he finally gets to the house, and he sees the professional mourners there. And what does the king do? Undeterred, he, he takes her by the hand, the little girl by the hand, another taboo, touching a dead person, and she gets up. He has power over death as well. After this, two men, two blind men, recognize Jesus as the promised king who would rule and reign forever. They understand that if he's the promised one, then according to Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the death unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. In faith, they believe that Jesus is bringing in the kingdom, which involves giving sight to the blind. And so they, they see, these blind men see what no one else sees. Jesus is the king. And they, the answer they've been waiting for. Well, what does the king do? He touches their eyes and their sight is restored. Soon after, a man who's demon-possessed and mute is brought to Jesus. Jesus drives out the demon, and, and the mute man speaks. So in this section, we see Jesus give life to a dead girl, give sight to the blind, and help a man who didn't have the capacity to help himself. And all of these miracles are sermons in action that point to a greater need. You see, without Jesus, Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in our sins and in need of forgiveness and new life. Well, without Jesus, we're, we're blind and mute. Our spiritual condition is hopeless. In fact, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah to describe the condition of the people that Jesus was, was serving. And it says, for the hearts of these people are hardened. Their ears can't hear. They have closed their eyes, so their eyes can't see, and their ears can't hear, and their hearts can't understand, and they can't turn to me and let me heal them. You see, we're hopeless and helpless without the king. Only he can give us new life and open our eyes to see who he really is. Without Jesus, we can't change, and yet how many people say, well, before I say yes to Jesus, I, I, I got to get my act together. Well, that's, that's thinking about it all backwards. Jesus is saying, come, follow me. Come as you are. Come with your baggage, with your wounds, your hurts, your problems, your fears, your anxieties, with all your bitterness and anger. Come, get to know me. I have the power. I have the authority to help you with your greatest need, forgiveness and life. You see, Philosophies and rules and causes can't do that. Only a relationship with Jesus the King can, and he does. See, I, I look around our world today and I see a lot of people looking for a cause to get behind, something to be passionate about, something to give their life to. But what they, what they don't realize is that it's not a cause, it's not a belief, it's not a philosophy that's going to change this world. 
the only one who has the power and authority, the only one most worthy to give our lives to is Lord Jesus, King Jesus. And so there were some in Matthew's account who did this very thing. They were ordinary, hardworking people who devoted themselves to the king and his work. They took up Jesus's challenge in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see, there were some who followed in this way, but then there were almost followers. They were amazed, simply enjoyed the show. Some of the religious leaders attributed the miracles to the, the power of evil and, and they rejected him. And as a result, Matthew gives us this summary at the end of chapter nine, which also serves as a prologue to chapter 10. And it says this, that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You see, the thing I, I want us to first realize is that Jesus saw people. He saw the people. If you've ever been in a, in a stadium or an airport full of people, I, I know it's been a while. <laughs> you can be in the crowd and, and not see the people. Especially when we're tired and worn out, it's, it's so easy. Uh, when I'm tired and worn out, I focus on myself. I don't see the people around me. But Jesus, except for the times when he went away to solitary places to pray, Jesus was always around people, always being asked to meet needs, speak in the situations, answer his accusers. It would have been exhausting. It's so easy to tune people out when we're worn out. To truly see people requires change within us. You see, we, we, gravi we gravitate toward the PLUs in our life, people like us. The problem with that is it, it leaves a lot of other people out of our lives, right? But if we're ever to see people as Jesus does with dignity and value, and not just a bunch of, a bunch of idiots who waste my time or a bunch of annoying gnats just flying around our heads. If we're ever to change that, we need the king to open our eyes. You see, Jesus saw something his followers didn't. He also felt something that they didn't. Because it says he felt compassion. Literally, he, he saw the people and he felt, it felt like a kick in his gut. He was moved by what he saw. He saw beyond the physical ailments and the daily distractions to the deeper tragedy of the people's great spiritual need. He felt compassion because he knew their true condition. They were like sheep without a shepherd, directionless, scared, lost, without purpose. He says they're, they're harassed. It's a, it's a graphic word, which means to, to flay or skin or mangle or strip the flesh. They had been harassed and victimized by, by those who used them and just simply tossed them aside. They were helpless. Literally, the, the word means mortally wounded and left for dead. Jesus saw, he felt, and he knew. 
Someone has written, until you see, you will not feel. Until you feel, you will not know. Until you know, you will not care. And until you care, you will not pray. Until you care, until you pray, you will not go. And the question is, well, go where? Follow Jesus. Fish for people who are wounded and mangled and thrown aside, abandoned, hurting, dying without hope. You see, if you're looking for someone to follow, this is it. If you're looking for something to give your life to, Jesus is the one. Follow Jesus and second, do what he did and, and fish for people. He warns his disciples in chapter 10, this isn't glamorous, this isn't easy. You're going to face rejection and, and family division and hatred and hard times, but the need is great. And he says in the very next passage, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, when, when harvest time comes, you've got to get the hay in the barn. The, the harvest doesn't last forever. There's a, there's a window of time to harvest the wheat and the cotton or, and the potatoes. If you don't get to it, it rots. In other words, there are people all around us who need to be rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus. Harvest work demands harvest workers, and to be honest, I think many of us can be too distracted by unimportant and trivial things. <laughs> I'm afraid of this myself, and that's, that's why it's been my constant prayer over this past year, Psalm 8611, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Give me a heart that's focused on you. In other words, don't give your life to things that don't ultimately matters. What matters is Jesus. And where do we start? Well, I think with a, with a rumble in his gut, I would imagine a, a tear in his eye, Jesus says, pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into our marriages and our families, our communities, our cities. Jesus says pray because prayer goes back to Jesus's, Jesus's power and authority. We pray to the Lord of the harvest because we read in Colossians, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He knows where the seed has been planted. He knows where the harvest is. He knows how many workers are needed. He knows what needs to be done. So he says, pray, depend on me. Pray that God will light a fire inside the church that will ignite a gospel-centered movement inside the hearts of followers of Jesus. Pray that they would repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. Pray that we'd follow the king rather than philosophies and systems and causes of, of an upside down world. Pray that we'd prioritize his kingdom agenda in our lives and in his power and his authority fish for people. You see, the issue you, we need to settle in our lives today is will you give your life to Jesus? Are you willing to rearrange and reprioritize your life around the king and his kingdom? 
you want to make a difference in an upside-down world, pray. And then give your life to the right-side-up kingdom and follow the king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're an advocate to those who have been tossed aside. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your compassion. Father, thank you that we find security in you and your power and your authority. You give us confidence. You give us courage. You've met our greatest need for a savior. Father, thank you for all these things. Father, I pray for committed followers of the King. And Father, just as, as I said earlier, Lord, ignite a fire in the hearts of the people in your church that we would constantly, continuously be pursuing you and pursuing people. Father, we pray for more workers for the harvest, for people who are willing to, to share the story of life change, of how Jesus has made a difference in our lives. Father, I pray for people who will show and tell the good news. Father, I thank you for the King. I thank you for the kingdom. Thank you for calling us your children. May we continue to passionately pursue you and love people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.